Well, we are beginning a series in uh, a great book of the Bible, 2 Thessalonians. You can find it on page 989 in your church Bible. Wouldn't it be nice if all of those easy schemes uh, that are out there actually worked? Wouldn't you love to have the uh, body of an Olympic athlete? Uh, wouldn't you like to live the life of a millionaire? You could achieve happiness and fulfillment that few find. There's a secret, of course. It's easy. But not a lot of people know about it, only I think a lot of people know about it because it's all over Google, and there's 22 reasons why you can have it. I, I did a quick little Google search uh, for some of these easy schemes, these fast fix, and there was a couple of things that stuck out to me. No time to exercise. Go on Amazon and get some Belly Buster Blaster PM pills, which, uh, as the name suggests, you don't even have to be awake while it's working. You can go to sleep. Uh, do you want to get rich quick? Well, why not join Push Money app? It supposedly is running a software uh, that you're not even exercising any control over and making you millions of dollars. And, and these people, they just, out of the goodness of their heart, want to make you rich. Or I like those ab belts. Uh, what about this one? Turbo ab toning transform firming belt. I didn't show you the picture because there was a half-naked man. So you guys, though, if you were to purchase the turbo ab toning transform firming belt, would have to do nothing, and you get to look like someone who exercises for a living. It's funny with these schemes. Uh, each are horrifyingly smooth horrifyingly sophisticated, and they work on people horrifyingly well. Let's be honest, some of us have spent a little money pursuing one or another of these. We were chatting about this around the office, and we asked ourselves, what were some of the harmful schemes that have existed out there? And uh, kind of quickly what came to mind was the Ponzi scheme, the Pyramid scheme, Amway, um, we also, I just learned, I just came to realize that there's actually this idea that you can go to the doctor now and the doctor will freeze away fat cells around your stomach. That sounds safe. Safe like the tapeworm diet that we had in the early 20th century. Now, I actually feel comfortable with this because it says the tapeworms are sanitized. Friends. There is not a secret loophole to the system. All of these things that people are scheming about saying you can make easy actually just require plain, good old-fashioned hard work. You will only put in the hard work to achieve these types of things, too, if you believe that it's worth the work to do it. And that's kind of the idea that we get as we make our way into the letter to the second, uh, second Thessalonians, the letter to the Thessalonians. In this series, I'm calling Get Back to Work. Uh, we're going to study this for the next six weeks, and if you're not familiar with the context of this letter, get your Bible out this afternoon. Go back and read Acts 16 and 17. Read the letter of 1 Thessalonians. We made our way through that a couple of years ago as a church. The reason that Paul is writing this second letter is he's writing because some schemers have posed as him and they're hijacking his message. He talked about Jesus coming again. They said Jesus has already come. And guess what? 
If Jesus has already come, it makes your life a lot easier. This claim disturbed the community. Some in the community are ready to throw in the towel. They say to themselves, well, uh, he said that when Jesus returns, that's going to bring relief. But he hasn't come, or if he's come back, we haven't seen any relief. That's a problem for them. Other people said, well, if Jesus has come back, well, I can just kind of pilfer around, catch up on the town gossip. I don't have to do anything. And they quit their jobs. And they were just living the life. You see, that's a problem, friends. Anytime we subscribe to some form of false theology, theology that's too good to be true, it results in poor behavior, poor living. So Paul comes back to the table and he says to these people, I'm not going to give you an easy solution. Now I think you can relate to these Thessalonians because maybe you've walked the Christian life and you've said to yourself, this isn't easy. This is hard. There's times where it feels awkward to be a Christian. There's times where it's a struggle because I've believed in God and I'm following God and I'm pursuing His promises and yet there's still struggle in this life. Why is that? Is it worth it? Should I follow Jesus if there's going to be struggle? And Paul says, look, nothing comes easy. You have to work hard if you want to be a follower of Christ. But why do it? Well, I think one thing we can see is that some things that are not easy are still worth it. Some things that are not easy are still worth it. Is climbing a mountain easy? (laughs) No. It's hard. But it's worth it when you get to the top. Is saving money for retirement easy? No. But if we would discipline ourselves and save money for retirement, then when we retire, we get to live the sort of life that other people don't get to live because we were diligent along the way. Is marriage easy? Yes. (laughs) Not at all. It takes work. It takes effort. But if I put in the work and the effort, then I get to have a marriage that is a blessing in my life. And the same thing is when we follow Jesus. It's not easy. In fact, when, when you were called to follow Jesus, you were asked to do the hardest thing that you could possibly do. I want to submit that to you this morning. Following Jesus is not easy. But as we're going to see, we're going to answer the question, why is it worth it? And Paul will explain this to us in a couple of different ways. The first reason he supplies is found in those first two verses. He says it's not easy, but you are well supplied to do it. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to pause right there for a moment and and meditate a little bit on the Scriptures. What does it mean, church, that you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever just read those opening sentences of epistles and just kind of quickly got past that so you can get to the meat of the text? Well, boy, 
You're jumping over the good stuff if you do that. Let's think about those two designations. God is Father. Jesus is Lord. What does Father imply? When I think of Father, I think of care and sustaining and protection and provision and, yes, even discipline. To be in the Father means that you are mainly under the Father's care and protection and provision. What does Jesus' Lord imply? Well, Lord primarily tells us that he is an authority, that he is our leader, that he has an ownership over our lives. If Jesus is Lord, then we are under his charge, his authority, and in his possession. John Piper uh, notes that in these two descriptions, we see that God meets our deepest needs. Listen to what he says. The two needs that every one of us has are the need for rescue and help and the need for purpose and meaning. We need a heavenly Father to pity us and rescue us from sin and misery. We need his help at every step of the way because we are so weak and vulnerable, but we also need a heavenly Lord to guide us in life. And tell us what is wise and give us a great and meaningful charge to fulfill. We don't just want to be safe in the care of a father. We want a glorious cause to live for. We want a merciful father to be our protector. We want an omnipotent Lord to be our champion and our commander and our leader. And here's why this is so valuable. Because if following Jesus is the hardest thing you've ever been asked to do, don't confuse yourself and think that you're doing it alone. You have a Father who cares. You have a Lord who leads, and He is with you. And Paul moves on to say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in this great and marvelous God that we worship, we come to realize that everything we have in Him comes from Grace. Now let me define that word. We hear it a lot, but let me define it for you. What does grace mean? Grace is God's powerful disposition to do good in your life, even though you have no right or claim on it. His powerful disposition to do good in your life, even though you have no right or claim on it. I was recently going through the gospel with a friend and we were having a conversation about grace and it all kind of boiled down for this friend. He said, it just sounds too good to be true. Don't I have to do something? Uh, surely I must contribute to this in some way. And I got to tell you, I can understand where he's coming from. I mean, this is a great gift that God's giving us. It does feel like I should do something. So I asked this friend a question. What could you possibly do to repay the Father for sending the Son to live the life you couldn't live, die on the cross for your sins? 
whom he loved in eternity past, who is closest and nearest to his heart, who he freely gave up for you. What could you give to him that would not come across as incredibly insufficient, inferior, and maybe even a little insulting? You see, gratitude is the only right response to this type of gift. Anything other than gratitude is insulting to our great God. When I say, Lord, I cannot accept your grace, I need to earn it in some way or another, guess what I'm doing? I've now put a value on that which is priceless. Could someone ever pay you something for one of your children? Now, I hope your answer for that is no. (laughs) What could they give you? What could they possibly monetarily give you? Jeff Bezos' entire fortune, no thanks. I'll take Alexia. I'll take Zach. I'll take Isaac. God, in his infinite kindness and goodness, has graciously offered these things to us in Jesus if we would put our faith in him. And when a person has trusted Jesus, notice that Paul says grace and peace because the, the, the benefit of grace is that in your life you experience a peace that surpasses understanding. That's the benefit of the gospel. So this is primarily why we can do hard things. We can do hard things because we have a God who supplies us as we do those hard things. But I want to move on to the next thing that Paul says to us. He also says it's not easy, but it is life-giving. It's vital. It's alive. You're growing. You're increasing. You're enduring. Look there at verses 3 and 4. He said, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecution and the inflictions that you are enduring. Now, I know that as you read this text, some of you just quickly thought about Gray's Anatomy, right? That was the first thought that came to your mind. Maybe not, but I thought about Grey's Anatomy, not because I watch it, but because Katie loves to watch it. I've seen a bunch of these medical shows, and they all seem the same to me. But one of the things you notice in these shows is that someone comes in, and they're unconscious, and they run this set of diagnostics. They're searching for vital signs of life within the person. Uh, is, is their pulse beating? Is their heart beating? Is their breath coming out of their lungs? They check the brainwave scans and those types of things. Now Paul, when he tells us in verse 3, we ought always give thanks to God for you because he is thanking God because he's seeing the vital signs of life that are indicative of a group of people who are following Jesus, who are alive in Jesus, who have trusted Jesus. You might recall in 1 Thessalonians, we observed three virtues, faith, love, hope. They're the cardinal virtues of the Christian faith. They're the essence to our response of following Christ. 
Faith is the, the vertical response to grace. I am confident in the care of God. Love is the, the horizontal response to grace because we follow Jesus in his pathway of love. And hope is the anticipation of future grace that one day our faith will be realized. When Paul places his hand on the wrist of the Christian, he is looking for these three things, faith, love, hope. And notice what he says about them. He sees in them a faith that is growing. In verse 3, because your faith is growing, he expects that. Growth isn't optional in the Christian life. It is essential to the Christian life. Now that can be both a comfort and a challenge to us, right? Right? The comfort is this. Some of us look out and we see other Christians who are following Jesus and we say to ourselves, I'm not as strong as... And you put their name in that blank, right? We think that my faith has to look like their faith and it should look like their faith right now. Here's a couple of things. One, your faith doesn't have to look like theirs. And number two... Manage your expectations, right? No one just starts walking with Jesus and looks like a 20-year Christian. It takes 20 years to look like a 20-year Christian. The challenge now, the challenge is that faith must be exercised to grow. If you want your faith to grow, you have to put the faith to work. Here's what happens. You exercise the faith. The Holy Spirit builds it. If you're confronted with uncertainties and and challenges in life and you, you don't trust God with those things, guess what happens the next time you face uncertainties and challenges in your life? You haven't grown your faith. The Holy Spirit hasn't come alongside and built it up. So we're not going to move forward in faith. We're not going to grow If you won't trust God with your resources, uh, you're not going to learn to do that if you don't trust Him by giving. You're not going to be free from worry and anxiety if you don't take steps to trust God with the things that are causing you fear and anxiety. You won't step out and share Jesus with confidence if you don't take the first step of sharing Jesus when you don't feel confident in the moment. You have to exercise it. The Spirit builds it up, and you grow. The next vital sign is a love that is increasing. Now, we tend to think of love as something that is sentimental, warm, soft, ishy, squishy, gishy, right? Romantic, emotional. So when we hear an expression like Paul says, speak the truth in love, we think something along the lines of, well, don't be too strong or direct, take it easy, right? Love is not like that. That's not the essence of Christian love. Sometimes love requires strength. Other times love requires that we take the more gentle approach. One author shares this. Love is not an emotional atmosphere or a sentiment. The death of Jesus shows us this. His death was not sweet, 
soft or romantic. It was an act of shocking brutality to which we walked, or which he walked with tears and blood. He goes on to explain that love is a determination to lay down our life for our friend, to seek the benefit of others even to our own cost. It is an orientation towards the other, a turning of outward of our vision away from what we want and crave and desire towards the person who is standing in front of us. Friends, that's why preference-driven Christianity doesn't work. If I walk into the church and everything that's happening in the church is about what I want and what I need and what I get, how am I going to practice love? Love is other person-centeredness. It means that when I walk into the church, my primary thoughts, if I want to increase in love, is that love must increase, I must decrease. I must be thinking about them, and the more I do that, the more I will love them. That's the idea here. Verse 4, Paul describes a hope that endures now, this is where we dive into the, the deep end of the pool in the letter of 2 Thessalonians. As we open this letter and listen to Paul speak, we are in love with the flow so far. Let's just, let's just be real here. Care given to us by a father, authentic leadership from the son, growing in faith, love increasing. All that stuff preaches. I just want to get up and preach that all day, every day. But the next part, well... Suffering and enduring? You're not going to see my face on the cover of a best-selling book espousing that kind of stuff. But Jesus said it plainly. He said this, In the world, you will have tribulation. Paul preached this same type of gospel, Acts 14.22, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it was the first lesson that he would teach churches after they had come to know the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 4, he said, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we would suffer affliction. This is why I said that following Jesus is the hardest thing that you will ever be asked to do. It is a call to cross-bearing. It is a call to foolishness in the eyes of the world. It is a call to laying down your life. And how might that look in this world that we live in today? Well, it might look like this, that you will face overwhelming social pressure to be quietly religious, to abandon your moral standards, to say that Jesus is a way, not the way. And if you lived in other parts of the world, the pressure might be much greater than this. It might be physical. It might even lead up to a person's life. So yes, following Jesus is a call to suffer. And it's stated right at the outset. Anyone who will come after me must deny himself take up his cross, and follow me. Now, suffering simply for suffering's sake is meaningless and hopeless. 
But suffering for a reason, a purpose that is honorable and worthy. Now that is a reason to suffer. And Paul knew, Paul knew this. He knew why people are called to suffer. And this is what he moves into next. He says in verses 5 through 12 that it's not easy, but he supplies the why. Uh, The big answer to the why question with suffering, the ultimate reason, Paul says, is that God designed it that way. He designed that Christians would undergo suffering. In verse 5, I take that that phrase, the evidence of the righteousness of God, to mean that God uses persecution for certain reasons. And what could those reasons be? Well, let's look at a couple of them. Uh, The first reason that I see is to fit the believer for heaven. To fit the believer for heaven. Verse 5 says this, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. And then verse 11, Paul says, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now that expression, that you may be considered worthy, does not mean that God is determining whether or not you are worthy. Rather, as Leon Morris says, it is declaratory. This means that God is revealing that which already exists. When a refiner passes gold through the fire, the refiner is not making gold prove that it is gold. He is passing the gold through the fire in order to burn away the impurities. You see, God is willing to permit you to struggle presently because he has a big vision for who you will become. He sees the you that you were always meant to be. He lays a template up next to who you are now and that template looks like Jesus and God says, I'm going to do everything I can to make you look like him so that you can become the you that you were always meant to be. Friend, This is why I let my kids go through hard things. When I think about their life and and what I want for them, I think about the fact that some of the things that I want for my kids require pressure in order to produce it in their life. I have a vision for Alexia and Zach and Isaac to be men and women of character who love Jesus, who are willing to do hard things for Him. And I know that if I remove the hard elements out of their life, then they're never going to get to that outcome that I most desperately want for them. So they have to go through the hard things. They have to endure them. Which means, brothers and sisters, chuck out that theology that says that God, if you just have enough faith, will give you more money, more health, more resources, more prosperity. It needs to go out the window. It's worthless. If God had one dollar to spend on you, he would pay one cent for your health and 99 cents for your holiness. If you were to measure the priority scale of God with with, uh, the clouds and the earth, right? God's priority for your holiness reaches all the way up to the clouds and his priority for your prosperity is about an inch off the ground. He wants you to become the person that you always were meant to be refined 
to look like Jesus. Hebrews 12.10 tells us this. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Another reason God has designed suffering is to show, to demonstrate His justice. Look at verses 6-9. through Paul explains, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now notice these two provisions of God's justice for those who suffer unjustly. Relief and repayment. Relief is the promise of an end to suffering. It's it's hard enough to suffer for a cause. It's impossible to suffer if I believe that there is no end design in mind, that the suffering will come to an end, that when it's all said and done, there will be some form of relief for me. But that's the Christian hope. The Christian hope is founded on the premise that suffering is not the final word. Relief is. Repayment is the just return for those who have treated the righteous wickedly. When Jesus returns, the Bible says that he will sift the humanity, sheep and goats. And he will distribute out, he will mete out justice according to how a person has lived their life, according to the decisions that they've made. Notice Paul explains the major determining factor He says that Jesus will inflict vengeance on those who what? Do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So John's gospel makes clear that there's a distinction between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. In John 3.17, he said of Jesus, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But friends, you have to understand that is a, a window of limited opportunity. You see, when Jesus comes the second time, he will hold everyone accountable to their stance with the gospel. So think of it like this, the gospel. The gospel is not only a promise and offer of salvation, it is also a demand for obedience to its call. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. God would not lay down the life of his son for no reason at all. And the consequence for denying or ignoring the gospel, Paul says, will be terrible. He says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord 
and from the glory of his might. The most terrible judgment that God could give to those who reject Jesus is to give them what they have truly asked for in the first place. That is hell. To deny Jesus is to say, I don't need your presence, God. I'm fine to go on living without you. And when Jesus returns, he says, if that's what you wanted, that's what you get. I mean, think about it like this. Genesis chapter 1 says, you were made in God's image. That's fundamentally what makes you tick. But if you haven't trusted Jesus, even now you're still receiving the benefit of God's presence. He's sustaining you. He's providentially moving in your life. He is providing for you. And in a less than perfect fashion, you are even still bearing His image in in some way or another. You are fulfilling that purpose for which God created you. But as John Stott writes, By being separated from the glory of Christ, the condemned will be alienated from their own true identity as human beings. Instead of being fulfilled or glorified, their humanity will shrink and shrivel. Instead of shining with the glory of Christ, their light will be extinguished in outer darkness. If heaven is to be with Jesus forever, hell is to be excluded forever. If heaven is the full realization of our humanity, hell is the full diminishing of it. If heaven is eternal security, hell is eternal ruin. I don't say this with any sense of superiority because I know that apart from the grace of God, I deserve hell. But thank God that this is the window of limited opportunity. If you believe the gospel, if you trust in Jesus, the Bible says you will be saved. You will be conformed to his image. You will become what you were always meant to become. So friend, if you haven't trusted Jesus, now is the time. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The third purpose for suffering we see is to glorify Jesus. Jesus' glory is the final and ultimate reason that God allows us to undergo persecution. You must understand that Jesus is the number one item on God's agenda. We're not number one. Now we are meaningful on God's agenda. We're high up the priority list, dare I say. I think we're number two. But we are a distant second. Jesus is number one. Listen to what Paul says in verse 10. He says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed in him. Then in verse 11, Paul says that God is making us worthy. And then in verse 12 explains why. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's 
ultimate plan, right? Let's think ultimate here. Let's not think about secondary, tertiary. Ultimate plan for your life, as Tony Payne outlines, is not that you would have a good and fulfilling career. It's not that you would build up financial security. It's not that we find the perfect person to marry. It's not that we have children who get the best things in life. It's not that we maintain a healthy body and lifestyle. It's not that we enjoy all of the good things in creation. God's most important agenda item fits underneath the umbrella of Jesus. He's working everything in your life so that you might look like him, so that you might live underneath his good rule. But don't miss the point of what Paul is saying in that. Jesus may be glorified in you, verse 12, and what? You in him. When Jesus is most glorified, you are most satisfied. When Jesus returns and, and we light up like light filaments as we are shining forth his glory, we are going to see for the first time that we never lived in the way that we were truly meant to live. But when he comes back, boy, we're going to shine forth that glory with him. So now we come full circle. Like I said at the beginning, following Jesus does not have an easy fix. It's not easy, but it's well supplied. It's not easy, but it's full of vitality and life. It's not easy, but as we see here, it is worth it. And God has a big purpose for you. He is shaping, molding, conforming you so that you'll be ready for heaven. He wants you to be the person that you were always designed and meant to be. I was thinking about this as, and I went back to a story in my mind when Lexi and I were out for a walk. She was five years old. We decided that we were going to go down to Lumber uh, Pond, which is just down the road from us, and uh, just go exploring and check out the pond. And one of the things we decided to do together to add a little spice and adventure into our life is that we would actually walk out into, onto a log that went out 10 or 15 feet onto the water. I love doing this kind of stuff. It just uh, teaches you some balance. It's exciting. It's adventurous. And you get a view that you just wouldn't have otherwise. So as we're walking out, of course, Lexi is like a young little mountain goat, and she's just leaping along the log like nothing matters in the world while I am doing the bird flap, right? You ever do the bird flap to stay up? On the way back, I somehow managed to keep myself on the log. Lexi looks down at the water and startles herself as she realizes that she is shaky, and she falls into the pond. She immediately grew frantic, started splashing and, and crying and saying, Daddy, help me, help me, pull me out of this. Now my initial impression or impulse was, I've got to save her. I wanted to reach down and, and whip her out of that water as quickly as I could. But then I had a moment of clarity. I decided that saving her right then and there might not be in her best interests. It's a teaching moment. It was a safe opportunity for me to teach Lexi how to leverage courage when she is afraid. So I said, Lexi, I know you're scared right now, but I want you to put your feet down. You can touch the bottom. She did. She touched the bottom and realized that she was stable. And I said, now, 
I want you to get yourself on this log by yourself. She tried to get up on the log and, and it was slippery and slick and she tried to slide her leg on and she fell back down and she said, Daddy, please, just get me on the log. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I am not helping you get on this log. You will get yourself on this log. This time, Lexi put her whole effort into the task. And you know what? She got on the log. It was in that moment that I had a vision for her future. I saw a a moment or a time in her life when everything would seem in her life like it's unraveling. A time in her life when she would feel like uh, there's no way to pick herself back up again and where she wouldn't want to face the danger that presented itself in her life. But then I thought of her remembering a time when she fell into a, a pond and her daddy was there and she was safe and secure Yet she should, she could exercise her courage and get back up on a log. And then I saw her facing that adversity in the future with the same type of resolve and courage. Maybe that would happen for her. Well, with God, there are no maybes. He begins a work in us, He brings it to completion. Not only does he put us through hard times, but Paul says he does it as we are in God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't do it by ourselves, we do it with him. Now you have to ask the question, is suffering fun? And the answer is no. I don't want to diminish anyone's suffering in this room. But is it worth it? If you're doing it for Jesus, absolutely. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?